0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics podcast. Andrew and I are your co-hosts today, and we're continuing our series where we examine a particular microbial species in some depth. Today we're talking about mycobacterium tuberculosis and we're hoping we can discuss some of the specific issues for bioinformaticians to keep in mind when studying this organism. We have a number of special guests on the show today. We are joined by Dr. Susie Hingley-Wilson, who is a lecturer in bacteriology at the University of Surrey. She works on tuberculosis and in her lab they focus on its survival and persistence. We have Danny Best joining us as well, who is a senior lecturer in microbial metabolism at the University of Surrey. She is a bacterial dietitian, so she's interested in what MTB actually eats. And we're also joined by Dr. Conor Meehan, who is an assistant professor in molecular microbiology at the University of Bradford. He specializes in whole genome sequencing and molecular epidemiology of pathogens, primarily mycobacterium tuberculosis, and genome-based bacterial taxonomy. So, Andrew, do you want to kick us off?
2: Yeah, so when people think of uh, MTB, their mind usually wanders back into history to the consumption and, you know, the time of Angela's ashes. So is TB still a problem these days, and why should we be concerned
3: Well, yes, TB is still very much a problem. And in fact, until last year, TB was actually, mycobacterium tuberculosis was actually the leading cause of infectious death. It overtook HIV. So aside from the COVID pandemic, it's still a really, really important pathogen. And there's no doubt that, you know, when the the COVID pandemic has been long, you know, got under control with all the multiple vaccines that have been developed that TB will continue to be a problem. And actually in the TB community, we've kind of looked on awe at the speed at which they've come up with COVID-19 vaccines. And we're still running with a vaccine that is, is it 150 years old? So yeah, very much so a problem.
2: So does that mean the BCG vaccine is so good that it's worked for 150 years or it's antiquated and we need new treatments?
3: The BCG vaccine is incredibly complicated because whether it works or not is, is very dependent on where you live in the world. So the closer you live to the equator, the worse the BCG vaccine is. And the reason that this is, is that they think that people who live nearer the equator are exposed to environmental mycobacteria, and that this sort of means that their immune system have kind of been primed. And so when they're vaccinated, they don't get a proper response to BCG. However, BCG is very good in protecting children from TB and from disseminated disease. Let's be honest, BCG has been the most widely, it must be one of the safest vaccines, right? It's been given to the most people in the world. But it's very, very complicated. And it's, it's, you know, to do with the individual, where they live. And, you know, in some individuals, it does have a lifelong protection, but it's very variable. And in some places in the world, they found the protective efficacy can be less than 5%.
2: But we do have antibiotics. It is a bacterium which responds to them. So, you know, why are we still concerned about it?
4: There's approximately one and a half million deaths every year from, from TB, and about 80% of those are due to fully drug-sensitive tuberculosis cases. So even with the drug resistance, which is a huge problem, that there's still a huge problem there, not counting for the, the drug-resistant strains.
5: So treatment takes, for a drug-sensitive, it's four drugs for six months. And so you have a problem with adherence in, in some cases, you know, because symptoms will go away after a couple of weeks. Actually, your bacterial load goes down to almost non-detectable after a couple of days. So when you have six months of four different drugs that you have to take, even if it's sensitive, you can have problems with supply, you can have problems with adherence, but also just with efficacy. We don't always know exactly how all the drugs interact with each other. We don't know exactly how they all work. So some of the drugs that we have for a long time, we don't even know how they actually work properly. And then that's not until you get into the drug resistance and, and that's a, a rising problem for sure. So we about 10 million cases of TB every year and about 500 to 600,000 of them are drug resistant. So the vast majority is still drug sensitive related, but you have access problems. You know, most TB cases are in countries that don't have great healthcare systems. Myself and Andrew can think about it from Ireland. There was a lot of TB cases in Ireland for a very long time. And now people say, where did it go away? We got better health care. People didn't have to all live 20 people to a house. People were able to just have better immune systems. And TB is a public health problem that's related to poverty a lot of the time.
3: On the negative side, there's no doubt that COVID will have a massive impact on people getting TB treatment. And there's already some documented evidence that people aren't either getting diagnosed with their TB and then they're not carrying on with their treatment. So that will have a massive knock knockout effect. But there has been some hopeful things. So, for example, there's now a six month new treatment for drug resistant TB, whereas before you had to treat for 18 months to two years. And they've also, I just saw that there's been a new clinical trial where they've reduced the treatment time from six months to four months. So there are some, you know, hopeful signs on the drug market. But when they last looked at TB pre-COVID, the WHO's sort of goal to end TB is not on target. They, They are managing to reduce the incidence of TB, they've massively reduced the death rate, but then aren't able to, to significantly get chink into that incidence. And I think that that's where COVID is gonna have a really serious impact.
2: I read somewhere that uh, about one third of the world has latent TB.
3: I think it's one quarter now.
5: I think that, well, yeah, it depends on who you ask. The, new number, <laughs> the newer numbers say that that seems like a massive overestimation, but it's definitely more than people think. So
2: that's
5: the, a that's the, a R, high number. the R0 of TB is about two and a half. So the R number is everyone here is now for COVID. So it's about the same as COVID, but that's only of symptomatic people that we know of. So we know that one TB patient will infect about on average two to three people who will become s- symptomatic. So the calculation was that actually it seemed that it was up to 10 people that would be there and be asymptomatic. And then they extrapolated from that, the number of people that have it to the number of people that could have it. And you come up with about a quarter, but obviously it's also localized. That doesn't mean that loads of people in countries without TB have it, but it does mean that you probably have a lot of latent period and a lot of asymptomatic people in high burden countries, South Africa, China, India, these kind of countries. And what also factors into that is on average, it's about one year after being infected before you see symptoms. Some people it can be two, it can be 10, it can be longer. So mycobacteria are just really slow growing and, and slow to present. So it's about like you have asymptomatic people, but then you have latent people, and this is not the same. Then you have subclinical, then you have clinical. So it's, it's pretty complicated that way.
2: Can I ask, has, have there been any studies done with genomics looking at say when a person is first infected and then it goes into the latent stage and then what does their genome look like 10, 15 years later or whatever period of time you know how is it evolved within the host is it the same is it quite different
5: some studies have started doing that there wasn't a, a thought that when it was in the latent period its mutation rate was significantly slower than when it was in the active period that doesn't seem to be the case but you're thinking yeah so so Mycobacterium tuberculosis has a very low uh, mutation rate anyway it's about 10 to the minus 6 10 to the minus 7 so It doesn't evolve very quickly over time anyway. We can probably get into SNP distances between people. It's not always known because it's unlikely that you would have the genome when the person gets infected and then also have the genome 15 years later. Now we do have them on treatment, but then we also don't know how much the mutation rate is speeding up due to the treatment pressures that are there. It's
3: kind of the million dollar question as well, because TB grows really slowly. And usually uh, you like mutation rate is the dogma is it's affected by growth rate. Mm -hmm. But when you look, it looks like TB evolves more. Although it's slow, it looks like it evolves more than it should. So I think a fundamental question that still hasn't been answered, which I think is quite intriguing. What's driving that? Is there some sort of clock like fashion is it to do with growth rate or are there some sort of mutators within the host? I don't think that's fully, to me that's a fundamental scientific question that still remains unanswered,
4: which I think is quite interesting. There's another complicating factor as well is with um, mixed infections, isn't it, as well? So we had a a patient that had sort of a a multi-drug resistant and a non-drug resistant in the same lung, so you've also got this other issue, another complication that, that can that can happen there as well.
2: That happened at the same time, they got infected, or were they infected two different time points? Like was it a cloud of mixed infections, or was it
4: so? This was this was an interesting case actually. There was one strain was sequenced, one kept, one came up. So what happens is when it's diagnosed, it's the fastest growing, which will be diagnosed. And then another strain, and the, the patient came back again. There was another strain after sort of two months that had taken over, and this was an eyes and eyes. It like a first, a frontline drug resistant strain, and there were two completely different strains that, you know, this had done, this this, the faster growing strain, which was a non-drug resistant, was there, and then once the patient took treatment, the other strain came up, and, and mixed infections are really massively under diagnosed in TB, because it's the fastest growing strain which grows first. So.
5: TB is, is coming along on the genomics, but when I meet people who work in E. coli and salmonella, they're just like, oh, that's what you're doing? Or, you don't understand that? It's just, there's a lot of things that bacterial epidemiology or geneticists really think is a fundamental thing that you would know, and in TB, we don't know so much. So for a very long time, it really was, they had one strain, that strain was everywhere in their lung mm-hmm. or whatever, and then they passed that one strain on to another. Now we're seeing that when we are doing the deep sequencing, we're seeing a lot more within host diversity. So we're seeing that the cavity that sometimes is in the lung might have a different um, subpopulation to what would be in the rest of the lung, or if it is, and then what we actually see in the sputum, so what they cough up in order to give us a sample, is not always representative of what's even in the lung underneath. And this is because of a lot of different things, different drugs penetrate into different parts of the lung, creating different types of pressures on treatment. And indeed, we don't know that much about the transmission of multiple strains to people or whether we have one that's, that is transmitted. So all of this is very, very new and Naki is showing a lot of this. I'm trying to show a lot of it, but we're not getting the funding for it. And other people who are, who are better are, are doing it, but it's deep sequencing is really difficult with TB because we have to culture it. We have to culture for eight weeks. As Susie just said, one one strain will take over because it's faster growing. Some lineages grow faster than others because we don't even know what to put in for proper growth of some of the lineages. And so now we're trying to go to that direct from sputum sequencing to try to get us the, a better picture. But that's really, really difficult as well.
1: Do you believe that this intra-host variation is going to change the sort of dogma around MTB where, I mean, the, the main thing you know about MTB is like it doesn't have any sign of recombination in the genome.
5: So there's there's no sign of recombination. And even when you look at these, there's no recombination going on. This is because of a, a couple of different factors. The cell wall is covered in these mycolic acids and all <laughs> these things. Naked DNA doesn't seem to be going in and out. We don't know that much about the phages, but it's just all the different ways that recombination can occur. It doesn't seem to happen within classic mycobacterium tuberculosis. Mycobacterium kineti, which is extremely closely related, lots of recombination occurs there. But um, a lot of papers have shown that even though you have mixed infections, they're not interacting with each other in the same way that you would think of like with viral recombination. They're just both present and seem to then result in worse clinical outcome.
1: So they're essentially mutually exclusive. One would fight the other one out. Is it is that the case, or we don't know? Maybe
5: they just they're not recombining their genomes, and that's as far as we can see, yeah. I guess
4: it could be a localization. Things like, so, in the lung, the different foci of, of infection are normally um, very local. So, so there'll be lots of one subpopulation in one, one subpopulation in the other. So you've got this distance between them, if, if you will, as well. Yeah, I mean, some groups
3: are doing, in America, some groups are doing some really exciting experiments where they actually barcode different strains and sort of compete them and see where they go in the granuloma. And that heterogeneity, I mean, that's the kind of thing about TB. Whatever it does, it's going to be terribly heterogeneous. So that that showing that actually one type of strain may survive better in one lesion and the other type might survive better in another lesion because the lesions are so heterogeneous. But one thing I think is really interesting, only because I've just read an MSC project from someone in South Africa, is people starting to look at all the uh, DNA repair systems and the effect that has, like the error-prone DNA repair systems and the effect that might have, and that actually, you know, you have those systems which kind of create that noise, which allows the genome to, to mutate more and actually gives the strains advantages. And I wonder if that kind of might explain a bit of the puzzle about the mutation rate with, with TB. I mean, I don't know a lot about it, but it kind of piqued my interest.
4: I thought it was quite, quite interesting. And that, so that might change the, the the cell types there as well. So, if you've got different strains, you'd have different cell types there with, say, more uh, macrophages affecting it or more B cells in another. You might have, you know, that might, you've got, it's just sort of increasing the heterogeneity even more, isn't it, than, than with different strains?
5: So, so, a lot of what was taught about TB, mycobacterium tuberculosis, if you ask somebody 15 years ago who was doing genetics, they'd be like, oh, but it's kind of boring for a bacteria. There was really this thing that it's strictly clonal. There's not really any difference with, between the lineages apart from extreme, ex- specifically known regions of difference. It's just one strain going from one person to the other. And every single new thing that comes out that's showing more genomes, it's just creating a more complicated picture. So we keep on trying to, if we go to a bioinformatics side, we keep on trying to say, well, this is the pipeline we're going to use. And then another paper go- comes out going, that's just not going to work because There's this diversity or there's this issue or it's selection bias or all these different things. So it's just called an evolving field is an understatement.
1: I just wanted to clarify. So there's no known or canonical mobile genetic elements at play here or?
5: Not in mycobacterium tuberculosis, single chromosome sitting by itself. Even the mycobacteria in general don't have a lot of plasmids, but most of the other opportunistic pathogens do. But maybe get where you're going with that. In terms of drug resistance and stuff like that, it's, it's chromosomal. It's mutations related or potentially epigenetic, but it, there's no there's no uh, plasmid or anything that's causing that.
2: Are you able to do hybrid capture on TB, and could we come up with a scheme where you know you pull down from a from a sample that's hasn't been cultured all the TB and then sequence that population of diversity really deeply?
5: Right. So, yeah, we just had the European Society of Microbiology Conference, and this was talked about a little bit by Gallo Goig, who works um, in Switzerland, and again with the Naki Comas. The difficulty, uh, so, yes, hypercapture has begun to work with sure Select and things like that. It's based on the H37RV genome, which is our reference genome, which is Lineage 4. And it does seem to work to a certain extent. It's expensive, and that's why we're still working on trying to make it cheaper, because when we're looking at doing that for epidemiology or drug resistance, we want to start doing it in high burden countries. Yes, we can do it here in the UK, 4,500 cases a year can probably handle that. But most countries, we wanna be able to get those sample numbers up and we're talking the number of COVID cases we see this year, that's what they're seeing every year with TB, right? So think of all the things that have gone into the COVID resources we have for just this one year, they're doing that every year. So hybrid selection does work to a certain extent. We have a couple of different problems. Getting the DNA out is very difficult because of the waxy cell wall. Normal sonication just ends up breaking up all the DNA into very short fragments. So we have to do work a little bit better with that. But yes, hybrid capture is working a little bit better with it, assuming that the gene content is the the same in all of them. But in some lineages, the gene content is different. So we found in Lineage 5, that there are certain genes in some of those strains that are not in H37RV, so then they wouldn't be captured right from there. So it's it's getting there. Again, like hybrid capture, the papers came out this year and last year. So it's still very, very new and trying to go towards that, but in a, an affordable way, because what's important in TB is that we don't create a two-tier system. We don't have all these technologies that then go into something that's only in high-income countries, where the reality is that we're here to try to help people in high burden countries. And these two only overlap in one country, which is China.
2: So I suppose the reason I bring up hyper capture, maybe this is just a random crazy rabbit hole. Um, in Oxford for COVID work, uh, Tanya Gubilek did a lovely paper where they were looking at the population of diversity within one host and then like all the people that they would have infected. So they could had these chains of transmission and they could see that in some cases minority variants are being passed on, and I was wondering, could you if you had those chains of transmission, say within a population, could you track how often you get like a cloud of infection being passed on or you know a mutation being passed from one person to another? you know is this something we can possibly capture really deep sequencing using hybrid capture of m t v
5: in theory, yes.
2: Write a grant there, Connor.
5: Other people have already written that grant, so I'm not (laughs) going to compete with them. But from what I've seen, I'm trying to remember what's published and what's unpublished and what I can say and what's not. From the published literature, we do know that there are some minority variants that are being transferred. Some people have shown that it's the same two or three strains that were in transmission clusters going across people. So we do know that it's not just one thing being transferred. And that's even from culture based where you do deep sequencing. So I think it's going in that direction that we'll see more of this. And a a question that we really are asking at the moment is how much is being transmitted between the different people? And is there a selection on that? So I think back to HIV that I used to work on, the dominant strain inside the patient was not always the dominant one that was being transmitted. So the fitness, what fitness means in TB is very different because transmission fitness versus obviously culture fitness and everything. So I think we're going towards that, but you also have to remember that when a patient coughs up sputum, there's not a lot of TB in that sputum. So we just don't have a lot of cells to work with when we do all of this. It's not like a lot of other things where you take a blood sample and it's just filled with bacterial cells in there. So we just don't have a lot of starting material when we don't culture first.
2: So can I, excuse me, ignorance, but going back to, to HIV, right? I recall in HIV research, when they do genome sequencing, they want to see what all the minority variants are and what percentages are in, in the sample so that then they can, say, switch drugs. So if, you know, a drug-resistant uh, mutation is, is popping up, is that something they do in TB? Or is it just whichever one goes fastest, that's what we treat with and that's it?
3: So in the UK now, they're using uh, deep sequencing to look for the, the SNPs. But the difficulty... With that approach, is obviously they're only going to see the SNPs that they are known to be associated with drug resistance. And I noticed that the WHO have just released a list actually of all the different SNPs that are associated with different drug resistance. So, yes, in the UK, that's done. Elsewhere, it will be what they mostly look for is because in TB, it tends that you get isoniazid resistance first. And then the other resistance tends to follow. There's different quick and dirty methods to look for that resistance. But it is a massive challenge in TB because obviously you've got a combinatorial problem. If you're giving somebody four drugs... It's what do you take out and what do you put in and then do those drugs interact with each other. But with this new, I think it's called BPAL, is it? It's called a BPAL, the new treatment for drug resistant TB. They can then say, right, we've got an isoniazid resistant strain or a rifampicin resistant strain. We can convert them onto this uh, regimen for drug resistance. But the key in resource limited countries is you just want something quick and dirty. So you you in a way you don't want all this finesse because you haven't got the time or the money. You know, the person may have walked 20 miles to get to the health service. So you haven't really, you know, you, you kind of haven't really got that kind of wriggle room that you've got in the UK to kind of dig down.
5: So only, only two countries use genome sequencing for drug resistance determination in the world, which is the UK and uh, the Netherlands. I think New York uses it for their local public one. At the moment, let's say you were in South Africa and you came in, you would have, have a sputum sample taken. They would then put it on it to an expert machine. So a gene expert machine that tests whether it is TB and will tell you whether it's resistant to rifampicin. So even though isoniazid resistance comes first, they mainly test for rifampicin in the clinic. If the person is resistant to rifampicin, they go on to multi-drug resistant treatment. Normally without checking the other drugs even work. Then they're put on the MDR one. Then you want to know whether they're resistant to fluoroquinolones. If they are, then they have to go on to what used to be called an XDR treatment, but all of these terms have changed in the last three years. Actually, the XDR one has changed in the last two months, maybe one month, because of the way we've changed the way we, we um, treat multi-drug resistance. So it's Different for a lot of other things that people are used to where they're used to take the sample, get the genome, decide on things from there. With TB, even doing that here in the UK, it's get the sample, wait three weeks and then get the SNPs and then go off. So they'll normally, that's how long, that's the, you can maybe grow it in a week in order to get enough to tell you the majority SNPs that are there. But these minority ones, were still very reliant on the culture and we're working hard to moving away from culture, but that's just, it's really, really difficult to do. And moving away from culture would be fantastic for a lot of other places. Then you wouldn't need a, a category two or category three lab and all that. And there is deep sequencing, target sequencing of the drug resistance related genes that you can do directly from a sputum sample in what's called a Dplex machine. And that does 30 something genes. And that'll tell you your resistances without having to grow it all up. But as Danny said, it's based on knowing those exact SNPs. And we get that for rifampicin and isonizate. We, well, we do pretty well up in the 90% sensitivity and specificity. That starts to drop off for a lot of the new ones. But one, which is kind of seen as one of the, the new key drugs that we're using, we're still pretty shaky on how well we do with those SNPs. And that's, it's about how the resistance comes about in those ones. So it's still pretty complicated on that side.
1: So I just wanted to clarify when you're talking about these resistant SNPs, despite this being quite slow, you always see new variants that
5: no. confer so,
1: resistance? Or
5: So let me take two examples for you. We have rifampicin, which is mutations in the RPOB gene primarily in an 81 base pair region confers 95 to 98% of rifampicin resistance that we see. And the gene expert essentially works on that 81 base pair region. It's got probes. It does a quick PCR against those probes. And then it says, if it binds, it's a wild type probe, there's no resistance. If one of them doesn't bind, you have resistance. So rifampicin is very, very concentrated in one area with very known SNPs coming up over and over and over. For pyrazinamide, it's in PNCA in, in the gene. It's, it's a pro drug that's then converted by PNCA into the drug. And their variation appears all over the gene and it's much more difficult to say. And bedaquiline is the same. We see new variations coming up all the time with that. So it really depends on the drug. And it seems to relate to how essential the gene is as well. So for some of them, we do super well. Thorquinolones, rifampicin, and isoniazid. almost always the same resistance. Interestingly for isoniazid, it's almost always exactly the same SNP and exactly the same gene. But in the lab, when you try to artificially get it to do it, it almost never will do that resistance SNP. So it's just some other pressures that are there with that.
4: I did just want to mention with with pyrazinamide, you've got some species that cause tuberculosis that are inherently resistant to pyrazinamide as well, like Mycobacterium bovis. So then you've got, you know, there's sort of a deeper, deeper problem um, there Mm -hmm. as well. Hopefully, we can get a better um, uh, vaccine too. We now we know how fast it can be done with, with COVID.
2: Near where I uh, grew up, there was an old hospital, which was like a TB quarantine hospital, you know, a lot long ago, back in the day, that's where they shoved people when they couldn't treat them. So are we going to go back to those kind of days, you know, with totally drug resistant TB, where we're just going to have to lock people up?
4: I think we have in, in some cases, That some cases there's, there's strains that are completely resistant to all known drugs. So we've gone back to surgically resecting lungs, so taking out that area of the lung um, that, that has caused TB. I mean, that, that happens already with extremely drug-resistant um, strains, yeah.
2: And so what is the categorization? So you have MDR, multi-drug resistant, and XDR, extensively drug-resistant, and then kind of what's the next level above that? I remember there's like a New Delhi strain, but of course we're not meant to be calling things after places.
5: The theory, you have TDR, totally drug-resistant after that. The main levels we use are RRD, RRTB, rifampicin-resistant TB, MDR-TB, which is multi-drug resistant TB, resistant to rifampicin and isoniazid. Pre-XDR is fluoroquinolone. fluoroquinolones by itself, but no, no other ones apart from MDR. And then XDR used to be fluoroquinolone and an injectable. We don't really use injectables as much anymore. Now it's fluoroquinolone plus a category A drug, which at the moment is just bedaquiline and linezolid. But they've said category A so that other drugs can be added into that if we do. And they're essentially the core drugs for treating MDRTB. So it's saying XDRTB is now you're resistant to two of the, at least two of the three core drugs for MDRTB treatment until they've potentially moved fluoroquinolone to first line, but that's a completely different discussion.
4: And these get more and more toxic as you go along, don't they, as well? So, you've got, you know, as, as you go along this system, they're incredibly toxic um, drugs.
2: And what about the cost for people in low income countries?
5: In high income countries, like us, it's covered. In low income countries, yeah, not so much.
3: That's obviously an issue and it's probably going to be an issue. It was one of the criticisms of, I think they've recently developed a more child friendly set of regimen for, and one of the criticisms was the cost, because I think the new regimen for MDR-TB is likely to be quite costly for low-income countries. It's quite interesting that one of the drugs that they trialled that worked, linazolid which I can't say very well, the history of that is that basically it defies all science because basically a clinician was so desperate to treat TB patients with something he just shoved in linens into the regime and it worked which is quite amazing if you think about you know all these fancy trials and all this kind of you know hypothesis driven yes. yes and then and then he just tried it and and it worked so that's kind of how desperate people who are actually at the coalface are You know, if if you watch, they they made an incredible documentary about drug resistant TB. And as Susie was saying, when it's totally drug resistant TB, people have to go off and die on their own, and it's not a fast death; it's a slow, horrible death. And they had this documentary—I can't remember what it was called—where they had this young teenager who was just in an empty house, just waiting to die of asphyxiation effectively which is is fairly you know in in 2021 that we've got a disease which was one of the first diseases to be described first infectious diseases to be described by robert Koch, that we still haven't managed to to you know cure that people are going away i mean to me i still even though i work on tv i find that fairly shocking and mm. you know You know, when we look at COVID, I know I keep banging on about it, but my line manager said that each one of the approaches used to make COVID vaccines have been proposed for TB, but there's been no money behind it, right? Because the vast majority of people who get TB are in resource-limited countries. So there is no country that is free of TB and tb is a pandemic and will continue to be a pandemic and when you see the difference of the response when you get high income countries affected as a tb researcher you'll you're kind of you know
4: you don't even know what the what co-infection is going to be like with them um, with COVID as well I mean that's people getting long COVID you're going to get, um, you're going to get even, you know it's going to get even worse
2: it's not going to get better. So maybe that's another grant you can put in to uh, investigate that because all the research funding seems to have been re-diverted to COVID.
5: So new drug development is really slow we only have bedaquiline and now technically immunizer they come up recently just because it's intrinsically resistant to a lot of things beta-lactamases and all that it's just they can't get into the cell because of this waxy cell wall What's interesting is I think it's going to start going in the phage route of maybe trying to see if we, there are phages that can do it. And what I'm actually interested in kind of what is what kind of Danny works on, of can we starve it out in other ways? Can we just cut off its sources of nutrition and, and other things and try to try to use alternative non-antibiotic ways to get rid of TB?
3: That's something I'm trying to pursue in the lab is and something that's quite sexy at the moment is adjuvant therapies, therapies that will make the, the drugs we have now last longer. I think that is kind of what we need to do probably for all infectious diseases, right? because you know there's there's no money in antibiotics because as soon as they, they get produced the, the bacteria get resistant to them. So we need to find strategies to make the drugs we have last longer are people
2: co-infected with other pathogens and is tb like the opportunistic pathogen that will finish someone off or is it that tb is the primary driver of all of this disease
3: so well if you if you think about tb and hiv they form a really unholy alliance because tb basically makes hiv worse and hiv makes tb worse and I used to live in, in Malawi in the 90s, in the absolute height of the HIV. I mean, it was, it was like 30% of women attending antenatal classes were HIV positive. All of those HIV patients died of TB. So from that point of view, from other infections, it's, it's interesting too. Like there's a lot of cross between parasitic infections, but that's more complicated some of them seem to actually provide some form of protection from TB, and some of them may make the TB worse when they've looked into that. There's then, from non-infectious diseases,
4: diabetes is a massive risk factor for, for TB. So, and a lot of reactivation as well will happen, which So exactly what Danny's saying, you'll get, to, you know, with onset of diabetes, if you've got a latent TB infection, which a quarter of the world's population do, that will then be reactivated by diabetes, reactivated by HIV, possibly reactivated by COVID, but we, you know, we, we don't know. Yeah. That, that's going to be most terrifying. All
1: right. So that's all the time we have for today. This is part of our ongoing series to talk deeply about a particular microbe. And this time around, we had mycobacterium tuberculosis. I want to thank our guests, Doctors Susie, Danny, and Connor, for joining us today. And I'll see you all next time on the Microbe podcast.
0: Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.